Hey everybody, welcome back to the Ironworks Podcast. I'm Pastor Tyler Warner. And I'm Zach. We're really glad y'all are with us today. We are coming to the end of our latest series here talking about uh, dispensationalism and covenant theology, calling it covenant discontinuities and continuities, talking about the nation of Israel, how it relates to the church, how the church is distinct from Israel, what the similarities are, and uh, we've already talked about the the past pretty much. We talked about the law of Moses and why we keep it and why we don't keep it and which pieces are for today, which pieces are not. And uh, that was all last time. But today we're uh, we're going to be looking into the future. Uh, the Bible gives us quite a bit of information about the future, believe it or not. And we're going to be talking about Israel and what what the plan is for them in the future. And I must say this is one of the issues, if not the major issue that separates covenant theologians and dispensationalists, which is, is there a place for the nation of Israel in the future? And what is that place? And and Zach, even before we dive into that, I'd say just about everybody has an opinion on Israel one way or another. Would you agree with that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This, you're not going to find a lot of people that don't have something to say. Um, I mean, this, this stuff is, and there's a reason for that, right? This it shouldn't surprise us. This isn't just, this isn't just natural. It's not just normal for, you know, you don't get people where you can put a microphone in their face and say, what do you think of Japan? And everybody's going to have, be angry about it, right? Most people will be pretty indifferent. <laughs> Israel's a little different, right? And that's not because Israel's more important than Japan, like, Normally, like if you look at the world, you would say, no, like, you know, Israel doesn't seem very important. They're not necessarily in an important place. They're not doing a lot of important stuff, but this is spiritual stuff, right? That's, that's why some of these things are the way that they are is there's, there's spiritual importance that's going on. And that's why the about, you know, the eyes of the whole world are looking to Israel all the time. And they have been for a very, very long time. So yeah, no, everybody, everybody has an opinion and theologically too, like anybody you ask. Yeah, it, that's it, true. You can't really understand or interpret large parts of scripture without deciding what are you going to do with these questions about Israel. Right. And I, you know, I've noticed a shift on this one uh, in recent years. I, I have my theories for why it is, but I'll let you go first on this one. Um, you know, for those of y'all that don't realize, Zach uh, worked for a uh, nonprofit that did a lot of work in Israel. He's been there many times. So I, I consider him to be certainly more of an expert on on the country itself than I am and more than most people you're going to run into anyway. So I want to ask, it, it used to be that the conservative Christian orthodoxy as concerned politics was you had, you, you were against abortion, you were against gay marriage and you were pro-Israel among yeah. other things. <laughs> yes. That Definitely. last one has really been taken a beating. I would say probably since this maybe the second half of the Trump administration, I've noticed a, a shift where more and more people that would call themselves conservatives, and this is politically here, but it, it relates to the church because it bleeds over into the church, have, have a much more uh, cynical or even negative opinion on Israel. Why do you think that is? And have you noticed the same thing? Uh, <laughs> Wait, are, is this too big a box? No, to open up no, the it's just there's podcast? so many reasons. Like, so I think one of the main reasons is that there's a lot of like if we're going to just talk politically which will will never get us in trouble i think there's a lot of pragmatism now in the republican party which i don't i personally do not agree with a lot of pragmatic just kind of dusting off of their hands and saying look why are we doing this anyway why are we sending all this money to israel this is expensive this is difficult this isn't popular what let maybe we need to think about this differently right um i personally think that that's just politically not a good idea but whatever let's let's set that aside 
let, let's look within the evangelical church. I think there is a shift now for evangelical pastors who for years have said, yes, this is important to us. This is, you know, these are God's chosen people. And there are now theological underpinnings that a lot of people are questioning. And replacement theology, which is what replacement theology is, it's kind of a, a catch-all term for for <coughs> the theological position that you don't agree that God has a plan for Israel anymore, that the church is now Israel. If, if you read Israel right. in the Bible, all the promises, yep, all you can the, substitute all the, the church. It's, it should just read church. Well, right? that is increasingly popular. So if you believe that anytime you read Israel, you can just swap the church in in your Bible, and I'm exaggerating their position. But Do you think the that the theology has come first or that the theology has changed in response to the political situation? I don't. I have a cynical take, but <laughs> my, I mean, I, I think, well, I'll, know, I'll tell you what I think here. Here's what I think has happened. I think that, um, you know, and we are touching on politics here, guys, a little bit, not, not really more descriptively, I think, and, right. and, and related to how this uh, affects the theology of the matter. So, um, I'd be happy to discuss with you in person, uh, my political views on these things. But I, right now, what I'm really just trying to get into is how this relates to how we study the word of God, because ultimately that's the point. But I think what happened is during uh, the Trump years, you saw a different kind of coalition set up uh, that was on the the right side of the political aisle, that it was much yes, more about... Much more about the I, you saw a lot more acceptance of let's say libertarian thinking uh-huh. uh, of like hey we don't want the government telling us what to do and that's that's pretty much become the case that it's you got those that think want to use the government right and then those that just wanted to leave us alone and now when a lot of those people came over to or came within what the window of what was acceptable for conservatives uh, especially conservative Christians. There were a lot of people that were very anti-war, very an- isolationist, kind of like the Ron Paul type yes. thing. Libertarians and, are typically very, very, yeah, why, are, why are we sending money over? Why are we going over? And that, that point, was a yeah. President Trump talking point too, right? right? Is right. why are we spending all this money on this foreign thing? Now, when that becomes primary, people are going to also say, now why are we sending all of this money over here to Israel? And if you do not have a robust theological answer to that, then you're going to sit here and wonder why. Now, there's political answers, but the Christian answer and my answer to this question, and this is, I don't care who doesn't like the politics of this. This is what the Bible says, that those who bless Israel will be blessed and those who don't will be cursed. The Bible says to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Those are God's chosen people. That is their land, according to the scripture. And we are to support them in that. That is what we have historically done. And that's the reason for it. But I think what has happened is because we have been pushed, we've been challenged more. If you're going to be more of a neocon, George W. Bush type person, you're going to be on board with supporting Israel because you have a a worldwide plan and theory of how you should go about nation building. But if if the the party, so to speak, has switched over to a more libertarian, hands-off, isolationist, why are we helping these people? Then you're gonna you're gonna have to evaluate now. Wait, why was I supporting them in the first place? And I think the theology has followed after that. I also think as the social justice left wing wokeness thing has arisen, which which is very pro Palestinian and very anti Israel and anti Semitic, anti Jewish. Also, that you've got those that lean that way in the church that are like, well, wait a minute, maybe we should be more nuanced in our approach to Israel, which is usually a a first step towards. And you know what? They don't even belong in that land anyway. And, and would you? Do you yes. How does that strike you? I agree to both of those. I also think that just in general, Israel is, I mean, just to coin a fancy sounding term, I think Israel is kind of like a, a theology crucible. Like Israel basically reveals like whether your politics are driving your theology or the other way around. 
Oh, there you go. And and, and Shots I fired. And I think and I think it's very important. That's why as pastors, like, look, you have to have a take on this, and not just a take like a political take. I mean, you pastor, you young man studying to be in the ministry, you you know family trying to figure out what do we do with the news and and what do we think about it. You must know biblically what you think about Israel because that will change how you interpret party politics, foreign policy, what we think is good to do. And it has to be in that order. If you're bringing in, well, this is what I think about this, and then asking the Bible what it thinks about your thoughts you already have, um, you're going to you're gonna come to some bad conclusions. Um, yeah. and, and that's, you know, so many believers, godly people, people that I love, people that are my friends, when they get to Israel, they start making some weird decisions. <laughs> and I mean, literally, physically, when they are in Israel on tours or, or trying to do outreach, they start making some weird decisions because some of this stuff hasn't been thought through biblically beforehand. Right. And that's that's our opening point here. And, and we're going to return to um, some of the uh, the issues between Israel and and the Palestinian territories in a, in a short time. But um, all I really wanted to say here at the beginning is everybody has an opinion on Israel, even people that really geopolitically have no reason to have an opinion on Israel. Uh, you know, <laughs> yes. like, what do you know about any other country? Why, why do you think this one is so important? Right. And and that's often uh, very much the you know, the accusation is like, why do we treat them differently? I'm going to tell you why we treat them differently because the Bible tells us to treat them yeah. differently. Spiritually and we, important. if we're going to have an opinion on Israel, we need to think biblically because that's how we are to think about everything is to think biblically. And so what we're going to do as we get into this subject today, we're going to look at the future of Israel, which certainly affects how we treat Israel in the present, or at least how we think about it. It can affect even how you vote or what, what kind of uh, authors and, and teachers you're going to listen to. All we're going to ask us to do is look at what the Bible has to say and think about these things biblically. And if that means you've got to be out of step with the the, the current wave or the modern political or theological orthodoxy, well, then so be it, right? Uh, we ought to have a voice in those things. and But it needs, we need to make sure it's our own voice. And this is kind of a sub-point for the day. Like, yes. I don't really have a problem with Christians engaging in politics, obviously. But you need to make sure that you are the one having a voice. You That your, your loyalty is never assumed that like there are things that we as Christians believe mm -hmm. and you don't have to accept or understand why we believe them. But if you're going to represent me and you're going to have my support, you you can work to gain my support, not the other way around. You're called right? to be a prophetic voice, not just an amplifier for somebody else's position, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And and there's plenty of things that are not uh, theological about which you can have varied opinions, for example. Sure. But I, again, like those three things, I think those still hold. Like I, you know, I'm a '90s kid. I remember what it was like, man. That gay marriage, abortion, and Israel are are sticking points for Christians. Mm. And if, if there's going to be a group that is going to want to move away on any of these things, then they're moving away from us. And if we feel like, well, well right. they're going to leave us behind, then that's going to be to their, they're going to be the ones that pay the price for that, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. uh, so I we're going to talk about some of this here. And uh, as I said, this is kind of the big issue between covenant theologians and dispensationalists. A dispensationalist believes that there is a distinction that remains between the Jews or the nation of Israel. It really is broader than just the Jews, but we'll, we'll use those terms interchangeably today. We refer to all 12 tribes here when we say this, uh, according to Revelation chapter 7. It's important to remember that. But also a, a, dis, a dispensationalist believes there is a distinction. A covenant theologian believes there is not. That there, the church has overtaken Israel. Some of them really, covenant theologians, really don't like the term replacement theology. 
Uh, they believe that it's not that we have replaced Israel. It's that God's plan has changed so that now he has invited everybody into this covenant that he's made with Israel. They don't like it because it's a good description. Yes, it is a good description. <laughs> and it's hard. It's like, you know, if it walks, Would be like, my opinion. If it walks like a duck and it talks yeah. like a duck and it yeah, uses yeah. Israel's promises for the church like a duck, then... <laughs> Right. Yeah, if you're going to come, for example, here's kind of the litmus test, and not a litmus test of salvation, just of what you believe about not. these things. Uh, these are in-house discussions. Important to keep that in mind. That if you believe that when God told Abraham, I'm going to give your people this land for the rest of eternity, if you believe that that promise is no longer valid because Christ is now working through his church, then then, then you're not a dispensationalist. You, you do not, you're a replacement theologian as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and... I understand that there's nuance to all that, and we can have those discussions, but uh, today I, I think that it, it's pretty hard to tell the difference. I think it's like, I don't like the idea of, some people will say, for example, this is a good segue, some people will say, I believe that there is some future for the nation of Israel, but I don't think that the Bible tells us what that is. That That is a, a good way to hedge your bet to say, usually what that is, is this is what I believe the New Testament teaches, yet I can't escape all this Old Testament stuff. We right. have argued before, and we'll argue again, that there is it's continuity between the Old and New Testament. There isn't discontinuity. That we believe that these things are to be held together, and I think that there are far fewer questions that are hanging over your head related to the nation of Israel as a dispensationalist than as a covenant theologian or replacement or a replacement theologian. Yes, I think so. And I think that it also, I mean, obviously we're, we're both here because we've thought through it, I guess. And so are other people who disagree with us. But to me, this allows you to read scripture according to the plain meaning more often you know, I remember having a great conversation with a young guy that we both loved Jesus. We were in college and, and I, you know, he, he was very much on, on, would have said, you know, no, 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 the church, you know, is, is now what Israel was in terms of God's chosen people. And I said, well, how do you explain, you know, Romans chapter 11? Right. And, and he said, he opened Romans chapter 11, we were reading it together and he said, oh, well, you know, this, this is referring to the church. And I said, well, but I said, but, but I said, I said, friend, don't, like don't I said, say that. I understand, I said, I understand that you've been, he said, I've always, and he was an honest guy. He was an intellectual honest guy. He said, I have always been taught that this is referring to the church, that that's how you should understand this. And I said, right. I said, but friend, it doesn't say that in the passage. I said, you've been taught that you immediately just smuggle that preconception in. But I said, if you were just to lay this out and read it according to the plain meaning, it would seem that Paul is saying there is God setting aside his chosen people referring to Israel because that's the context, you know? So I think it, yeah. yeah and, I th and real quickly, we will talk about uh, why we feel like that in most cases, uh, many of the promises that are made to Israel are, are indeed applicable to the church, but not for the reason that a replacement theologian would think. Uh, and, and maintaining an that distinction yes. is very important because there are limits to it. And this is just reading the Bible in context and, and understanding it. So, I mean, I'll let yeah. you finish your thought there. No, we it's are just going to get into that. You just got to, I think to me, be, reading the Bible dispensationally allows me to accept the plain meaning of Scripture more frequently and, and less frequently have to bend over backwards and say, well, if you understand that this is a symbol of this, and then if you see this over here, you know, just more frequently, I can just let Scripture interpret Scripture, read it plainly, and come to the conclusion. And there's, there's obviously pitfalls and problems with being, too, I don't want to say too dispensational, for not correctly interpreting things dispensationally. But now we talked about Israel, that, about using, a, you know, using it as a prescriptive rather sure. than a descriptive system. But uh, guys like E.W. Bullinger, uh, I think, would fall in that category. To me, you know, in it, too we, much. <laughs> for a covenant theologian, most frequently, they either don't discuss Israel at all. This is just my, my experience. I'm not trying to accuse anybody. They either don't discuss Israel at all, 
presently. Or they do what you said, a vague, like, well, it's, you know, God has some role for them, but we're not sure what it is. As a dispensational person, I'm quite aware. I'm able to make really clear dis- discussion and pronouncements on this is what's happening with Israel now. This is what's going to happen to Israel in the future. I, I can't tell you when that's going to happen or exactly what that's going to look like, but I can tell you what where the prophetic clock is now and where the final tick is going to end up. Yes, and that that's the thing that is baffling to me when I read this. And I realize that guys, when they say this, are trying to extend an olive branch. So I'm, I'm, I don't want to be a jerk about it. But oh, it, sure. at, as we talk about this subject, when you say, I think God has some plan for Israel, we just don't know what it is. I don't know how you can say that when there's so much in scripture where he's told us, like you just right. said, he told us. But this goes back to what we discussed before. And I don't, actually don't even know uh, how in detail we went in, on this, but that the, the main other main difference so the big theological difference between covenant theology and dispensationalism is what you believe about Israel I would say the the real difference is how you interpret prophetic literature do you interpret it literally or do you interpret it in some measure symbolically or allegorically mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. we believe in consistent literal interpretation of Bible prophecy and it's best probably to say regular interpretation and the definition of what we mean by literal interpretation regular interpretation the normal Rules of language apply when you are studying prophetic literature. That right. that means if there's a symbol, we'll interpret the symbol. But if there's no symbol, then we're going to just read it like it is. That's we believe important... that a symbol refers to something actual and literal, that God is giving us actual details, actual explanation of what is going to happen. This is not just spiritual allegory from which you can draw application. And that's an important distinction because I know a lot of guys, you know, guys that I love who are great guys, and they'll, and they'll dunk all the time on dispensationalists because they'll say, oh, you know, <clears throat> you guys are ridiculous. You just, you, you, everything gets interpreted exactly lockstep literally and you're just, you know, demolishing what the text is trying to say. And and look, frankly, there are some dispensational guys who when they get finished with a passage, it, it to me ends up far from the plain meaning of the text because they're insisting on everything being this rigorously literal thing when it's pretty clear the passage is talking in symbolic language, right? So I have, no, like you said, there's a difference between regular and literalistic you know, interpretation where, well, it, it said this, so it's got to be exactly that. Okay. You know, I, I agree that there can be, we can read it the way that the text is trying to describe things, but I don't think at all that that means we can just throw everything up in the air and it can all be loosey goosey. And while well, this is a symbol of that, and this is symbolic, meaning the commentator doesn't understand it and doesn't want to explain it or, right. you know, things like that is where you have a problem. So yeah, you, you do need to be wise about this stuff and careful and you can't just always be rigid in the way you look at prophecy. Yeah, I think this it's is important. what I like to say. For example, in, in the book of Revelation, John has a vision of a seven-headed dragon. Right. Now, the accusation that comes towards dispensationalists is, yes. so you guys believe that there's going to be a seven-headed dragon rampaging across the world? No, but we believe that when he says this dragon is seven kingdoms that are ordained by Satan, we believe that those are seven actual kingdoms. Right. And that the, there's the going to be another have one. A real the whole point of that yes. passage is there have been seven of these and another one's coming. Right. And so a literal interpreter would say, okay, so there have been seven of these kingdoms. We think we know what they are and another one's going to come. An allegorist would say, well, seven is the number of completion and there's always going to be one more bad kingdom coming. And the lesson is that, you know, Satan inspires these evil empires. That, But okay, that that's, you are now 
taking a step away from what the text actually says mm. in order to to allegorize and interpret. Now, I've been teaching through Revelation on our Sunday morning studies here, and one of the delights and challenges of teaching through that is I have to make decisions in my presentation of the text. How much of this, what percentage of this study am I going to lean into the interpretation, and what percentage is going to be application? So if I'm talking uh, this Sunday, I'm going to be in chapter seven, where I'm talking about the sealing of the 144,000 and the martyrs that sealed with their blood, right? Okay. How much of that am I going to talk about what we believe will be taking place on the earth during the tribulation? And how much of that is to be encouragement and prayer for the lost and prayer for the martyrs in the present day? Because it is, it also speaks to that, but there's both of those things. Now, a, a person who does not interpret literally likes to say, well, you're completely missing the application and the, and the other uses of this passage. Well, we we don't, we shouldn't, but you yourself are missing out on what I would say is the primary purpose of a passage like Revelation, which is to reveal the things that are to come. The point is, if you interpret your Bible literally, and this is not a boast, this is understood and recognized by all parties involved here. If you are going to interpret your Bible consistently, literally, you have to come to the conclusion that Israel as a nation is a unique and distinct group from the church yeah. and that God has plans for them that have not yet been fulfilled. Yes. Oh yeah. There's no other way to arrive at that. And I forget which, uh, there it might be Charles Hodge who I love, but I don't disagree with in his eschatology who, uh, or not Ryrie cause Ryrie's a dispensational. I think it's Charles Hodge who said, if you're going to interpret your Bible literally, well then yeah, of course you have to be a dispensationalist. Right. Which says to me, okay, I should be a dispensationalist. Right. Like I, I believe in these things uh, related to Israel in the end times, not because I want to. I believe them because I have a high regard for Scripture, and I believe that God gave us, of all the things God could have given us, he gave us a book. Mm-hmm. And that I believe that the normal rules of language apply, of course, with the inspired work of the Holy Spirit and all that. But that just to kind of set us up here of where we're coming from, everybody has an opinion on Israel. We want to think biblically. And the way that to think biblically, I would say, is through consistent literal interpretation, which is going to bring you to a dispensational view of the nation of Israel, which I think is the right one. And we're going to now outline for you what the Bible teaches about the nation of Israel, what their future is. And uh, this this whole series has been about the covenant, the old and new covenant, uh, what's going to happen to those that have excluded themselves from that new covenant? What's happening now and what's going to happen in the future? So, uh, Zach, let's jump back in time now to Palm Sunday. And when you look at Palm Sunday, uh, it's it's an amazing scene here uh, yeah. that where Israel was essentially welcoming Jesus as their Messiah. If you look at what is was being said in this scene, I mean, this is a pretty spectacular thing that that was going on that they were welcoming the son of david into the to the city of jerusalem right it's, a, it's a very revolutionary vibes <laughs> they're they're yeah, talking about that yeah, yeah well they're you know this is them using all of their uh all of the symbols and the and the images that jews would have understood to be like you've you've taught from the pulpit before and i think it's a great way to explain it imagine if we saw somebody coming down the street right now or or marching up even better to like the capitol building and they've got a guy on their shoulders who's in a tricorn hat with a wig on and they're waving you know you know uh uh the stars and stripes and there's somebody with a, a drum and a fife playing Yankee doodle playing na- Yankee doodle and and they've they've got rifles and they're all kind of you'd be say well somebody is doing something revolutionary, right? Why? Because to us as Americans, those symbols all immediately tell us about a, a spirit 
you know, we talk about the spirit of 76, even this vibe of revolution of, of throwing off these authorities of, of being our own master, right? Well, for the Jews, the palm branch, especially was the Jews called their irregular fighting force in the 1940s, the Palmach, which, you know, is, is as far as I'm aware, is a reference to this, of the, this palm branch kind of thing. The palm branch was associated with the Maccabeans. The palm mm -hmm. branch with the Maccabeans were these forces who said enough is enough. We're not letting these, you know, ridiculous despots tell us that we can't worship God. We're going to you know, kick them out basically and start, start going crazy. Yeah. So, let, let me, let me talk about that story a little bit. I mean, the, the Maccabees, the, the Maccabean literature guys is not scripture, correct. but it's good history. Uh, and you should go back and you should read it just like you should read lots of good things that are not scripture, uh, and it, interpret it through the lens of scripture, but it's the fulfillment of what Daniel had prophesied mm. in, in his book that when Israel, you end the old Testament, Israel is under the thumb of Persia. Persia was, was conquered by Alexander the great, who, Daniel described variously as uh, a, as my favorite one is a goat with one horn that flew across the world from the, from the West. And uh, that's who Alexander the Great was. He established the largest empire the world had seen to that point. He died. His kingdom was split up into four pieces, which was also prophesied. And the two that concern us, you know, it's interesting that Cleopatra has been in the news lately because has, yeah. there was a Netflix documentary where uh, there was. they uh, portrayed her as, as, African, but uh, she was Greek because the, we know this because she was of the Ptolemy dynasty, right. which Ptolemy was one of the successors to Alexander the Great. The other one was the Seleucid. Actually, it should be pronounced Seleucid, but we're not going to be that lame. We're just going to call them the Seleucids. <laughs> uh, there's always a hard... When you see C in Greek, it's almost always a hard C, by the way. Uh, but yeah, these two, there were others, but the two dynasties, the Ptolemies in Egypt capital of Alexandria and the Seleucids who were, were capital of Syria, Israel's right in the middle. Right. And they were fought over for hundreds of years back and forth. You, you can go back and look at the, the Ptolemaic Wars or the Seleucid Wars. And uh, this is the, Rome was rising during this time and Israel was being fought over. Eventually, one of the Seleucid kings, Antiochus IV, also known as Antiochus Epiphanes, began to oppress and to uh, really beat down the Jews because the Jews were resisting Hellenization. Zach, what is Hellenization? You're the history buff. Greekization, like me yeah, being Greekified. Yeah, being made Greek. And so culturally, they, they were trying to force the Jews to adopt Greek ways. And there was lots of Greek culture that was absolutely abhorrent to the Jews. You know, things like rampant homosexuality and, you know, public nudity and things that right. just were idolatry. Of yeah. Course, shaving uh, the beard. Right. Th things that just no Jew, even outside the religious things. Like you got to realize it wasn't because it wasn't just religious. It was also cultural. It was, we don't, Jews yeah, don't. Yeah, it might have even been primarily cultural. Yeah, Jews don't cut our beards. Jews don't take, you know, Jews don't work out in the buff. Like, that's not what we yeah. do, right? And so there was this cultural sense of we're being oppressed, we're being made different, we're losing who we are. Maybe you guys recognize that kind of impulse, right? It's, it's amazing the parallels. Yeah, of course. Between we're, we're, Palm Sunday and, and today. They're taking away our, our culture, right? They're so, trying to change our heritage. Yeah. And, yeah. and Tychus made it illegal to speak Hebrew. Yep. He made it illegal to read the Torah. They were burning all the Hebrew scriptures, which of course is abhorrent that he would burn in the Bible like that. Uh, they were building hippodromes, which a, a hippodrome, hippo is Greek for horse. A hippopotamus means water horse. So there you go. Uh, <laughs> they were race, mandating yeah. that they send their kids to the gymnasium. Right. They were, uh, you had to shave your beard. If you circumcised your child, the mother would be crucified with the child hanging around her neck. Uh, it was a terrifying, yeah, terrible he time. He was an evil dude. Forced Hellenization. He yeah. called himself Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphany 
is like an appearance of a god. So he was calling himself a god. All of the people around him called him Antiochus Epimanes, which is a pun. Epimanes means madman uh, because that's what he did. He set up uh, an idol of Zeus and an idol of himself in the temple that had been built by Zerubbabel. Right, One from might Ezra say an abomination yeah, that ab- perhaps caused some desolation. desolation. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, Daniel prophesied <clears throat> that. He yeah. sacrificed pigs in the holy place. So what ended up happening is there was a, a priest uh, who's re- re- resisted. Joseph, I believe his name was, who resisted and started a rebellion. They tried to force him to make a sacrifice and he wouldn't do it. He ended up killing the man that said, okay, I'll do it, and killing the pre- the our Greek official that was trying to make him do it. So he and his five sons started a revolution. And one of his sons was named Judas Maccabeus. Maccabeus means the hammer. Pretty cool name, right? Judah yeah, the hammer was his it's, name. It's a pretty legit. So that's, why, um, that's why it was called the Maccabean Rebellion. Yeah. Now, they staged a successful rebellion against Antiochus. They drove him out. It's where you get the story of Hanukkah. And the symbol of that time was the lampstand, right. which was, the, of course, the Hanukkah, the, the lampstand that lasted for eight days, and the, the palm branches, which were called lulav in Hebrew, which comes from Psalm 118. That, that's why they sang that on that date, that they would wave these branches. Or, excuse me, not Psalm 18. We'll get to that. Uh, it comes from the Feast of Tabernacles where they would wave these palm branches because it was symbolic of we have finally come into the land and it was looking forward to the new kingdom when God would establish them. Well, if you drive out Greece, you would think, okay, the kingdom has come. Here we go. And they would wave the palm branches. So you look at the coinage of this time. You had the palm branches and everything, right? But uh, what ended up happening is one of the allies that the uh, Israel had made during this time or Judea, as it was called now, one of the allies they had made in order to keep Antiochus out and his descendants out was with the the Roman Empire. And what ended up happening is Israel ruled themselves for about 70, 75 years under the Hasmonean kings. Um, and the Hasmonean kings, this is also interesting to me. This might have to be two podcasts. But, uh, <laughs> That's all good. The Hasmonean kings were uh, not of the, of the line of David, and they were priests, which were two big no-nos for the king. Yeah, well, there was lots of no-nos, but yes, these were two big ones, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and what ended up happening, as amazing as it sounds, they started to force Hellenization upon Israel as well. Yeah. They Because they wanted to be accepted among the, the Greek culture, and that's what it was, right? Is You know, if you are familiar with, um, was it, the Meiji reforms in, in Japan, where he, yes. where he, he yes, got yes. rid of the... Got rid of the katana blades. He got rid of the uh, kimonos, and everybody started wearing suits. Forcing everybody, everybody to modernize. Yeah. It was like that mm-hmm. because they wanted to be accepted. Now that gave rise to a certain group of people called Pharisees. Uh, Pharisee comes from the word to cut, which means to separate. You've perhaps heard of them. Yeah, exactly. Well, this is. I think this is so interesting because it shed so much light on what was happening in the time of Jesus. Yes. The Pharisees were obsessed with the law. And they, they began well, right? They, they started out, like, we're, we are Hebrews. The whole point of this revolution was so that we could be Jewish. We could serve the right. Lord. And they became enemies of the Hasmonean kings. There was one day, I believe it was 600 Pharisees were crucified on one day by the Hasmonean kings. They didn't like the Hasmoneans because you guys are not of the line of David. You're not priests of the line of Zadok either. So you're not supposed to be high priests. And they're... they're Obsession with the law came about because of, a, of an obsession with their culture 
mm-hmm. which is why by the time you get to Jesus's day, he's rebuking them because as you care more about your culture than you do the word, right. more about God. And, and that's where it needs to be. Nothing wrong with loving your culture. But he says, you're teaching the traditions of men yes. as commandments of God. So like the Lord is less concerned with your culture uh, as he is with the scripture. So two things. I just fact checked myself and Paul Mach has nothing to do with palm branches. It's a Hebrew acronym for something completely different. So I just wanted to make sure that. Oh, uh, there you go. See, somebody's already see, commented. Now that's, and, that's fair. And that's told all right. Us we don't know what I, we're talking about. <laughs> I am wrong. I understand that I'm wrong. Moving on. Um, second thing is, but all of this is very, to this day, there are like, for example, one of the, the main uh, Israeli soccer teams is called Maccabi Haifa, which is, it's, it's referencing the Maccabees. Like this is still, this is very important to Jewish tradition is this tradition of when we get pushed past a certain point, we, we rebel. We don't do that. Like we're, we're you cannot come for us. It, like no wonder we get along so well. The yeah, Americans. they're very. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's the vibe, right? It's like, look, we, we don't care. Like we're not going to do it. We're not going to go along. Um, and and that's included in even the history in the '40s of how they responded to the British mandate and things like that. Anyhow, yeah. um, that all is important because then when you read and I love you taught this about the other day when you taught Palm Sunday or the last time you taught Palm Sunday, it was so helpful to understand. That is all like crackling in the air when Jesus approaches Jerusalem. Oh, yes. Because all these, now think all that stuff we just talked about. These people have lived, a bunch of these people that are present at at Palm Sunday have lived through some of this stuff. And, or, or they have heard a story from their grandpa who's lived through something like that. Like they, all this is passed down. And so they understand now we're under Rome. We've been under the Hasmoneans. We've been under all these different people. Oh, let going let back. me get the Roman piece in there real quick. Yeah. So yeah. Go, go. And I'll let you finish. Go. Um, but what, what ended up happening is one of the courtiers. So if you guys are into like courtroom or not, not like Judge Judy, uh, but like court dramas, like something like Game of Thrones yeah, yeah. or like that. This is your story here, man. One of the courtiers was named uh, Antipater, who was an Edomian, which is related to the word for Edom. It was the modern word for Edomite. So this guy named Antipater was in the court of Israel, of Judea, and he was a descendant of Esau. Now, Israel was in so much turmoil under the Hasmonean kings, what he ended up doing is going to Rome as Rome was expanding its borders and said, hey, if you, kind of like Judas, basically, if you make me king, I will deliver Judea over to you. And that is what he did. And this was a common thing that would happen with Rome, too, is Rome would just put guys over these provinces and say, look, it's up to you. Like, sort it. We don't want to worry about it. Rome did not directly govern most things most of its right, right, right. if they could help it right which is just wise that's how you run an empire basically but what Antipater did is he let them in Rome came in with the alleged uh, excuse we're going to help keep the peace in Israel and they took over Israel and they put Antipater as king of the Jews and Esau descendant and Antipater had a son named Herod who you've if you know you've heard of him <laughs> you, yeah perhaps you've heard of Herod before yeah. this was the guy that that wanted Jesus killed, mm-hmm. that tried to kill Jesus when he was born. This is the one that the wise man came to. So this is not that long ago. No, no, no. So now you've got Rome. Rome comes in, and Israel was a was not a good client state of Rome. They were constantly rebelling. That's where you get zealots like Simon the Zealot, yeah. uh, who are pushing back the Sicarii, which is where we get the word for assassin, is related to that. And what ended up happening is Israel's Judea status got downgraded under Rome to where, okay, now you have to be directly ruled by us. So this is why the the, the Herodians lost authority and Pontius Pilate came in. Because Pontius Pilate, his job was to be the mean dictator to keep Judea in line. 
they had built the Antonia Fortress, which was a fortress on the corner of the temple grounds where they could look down into the temple and see what's going on. And it was very combative between the leaders of Israel, as you can imagine, and Pontius Pilate. And Rome was also buying off the priests. They were the ones setting up who would be high priest, which is why right. the Sadducees were Hellenized, even though the Pharisees were not. The Sadducees were all okay with Rome because Rome was was the one that was giving them their power. Yeah. And so yeah. all of this is going on, and then you get to Palm Sunday. And I'm going to let you finish now. <laughs> well, yeah, well, I mean, but that's all. That's the thing is, this is all so important to what's happening because all these people are looking to Jesus saying, you're, you are the guy, you're the, you're the Messiah. And if you're the Messiah to them, that means that, what does that mean? Well, that means you're going to kick out Rome. That means you're going to come and get rid of all these corrupt people. You know, the average person probably wasn't a big fan of the Sadducees either because they were basically, you know, Roman clients yeah, bought and, and paid for. Yeah. Bought guys. You're going to get rid of all these guys. If you were a zealot in the crowd, you would have been super jazzed on this, right? Like he's coming. David's descendant is going to sit on David's throne. Do you remember that? Um, do you remember the, uh, it was a the series, the Bible series, not the chosen. Yeah. Yeah. Huh? Yes. Like I remember. They, they did called? a great job yes. of showing this Yeah, where, uh, there were all throughout the series. They're showing these troublemakers like these. I remember there was a bald guy was one of them who was, were always like the zealots. They were always trying to start yeah, something up. I mean, these guys and then were when Jesus rides in on Palm Sunday, they're hanging out with Jesus. You can see them in the crowd. I thought they did such a good job. Yeah. Well, and, and this is, this is now you can see why just from a human perspective, obviously we're guys, we're not saying like, I, I hate, hate, hate when historical revisionists go back and say, Jesus as revolutionary. It's like, that's the literally opposite of what Jesus was trying to do. Yes. But you can see on a human level why the Pharisees would look at Jesus and say, oh, he's got to go. Yeah. There's he's a, there's jeopardizing a, what we're trying to do. There's he's a passage in John chapter position. 11. Let me read it real quick. Right. Uh, where when Jesus is, uh, I think it's after he rose Lazarus from the dead. Um, in John 11, says, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered to the council and said, what are we to do for this man performs many signs? If we let Jesus, him, go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Right. They were concerned that if people keep on following Jesus, calling him the Messiah, the king of the Jews, Rome's going to come in and crush us because it's another rebellion that Pontius Pilate had been deliberately sent in to put a stop to. And in fact, if you, just 40 years after the death of Jesus, that is exactly what happened. Well, not only is it exactly what happened, but you, you got to understand that a lot of times for the Jews, they were, these false messiahs would pop up and lead these armed revolts and say, I'm yeah. the guy, like, follow me. So it, it made sense to them that this would happen. So when Jesus comes in, he is, he is fulfilling the promise of the Messiah, but he doesn't end up doing it in the way that they wanted. No. And, and in fact, so Palm Sunday, right, you've got the scene He's riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, fulfilling the prophecy in yep. Zechariah, which you all know. They're singing. Here it is. I told you we'd get there. Psalm 118. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That song is all about the kingdom coming, man. Mm -hmm. It's all about, hey, it's time. The king has come. David is here, right? Hosanna, save us now to the son of David. But if you look at Luke 19, verse 41, when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. This is I, I, such an amazing image to me here. You've got all of this history and all this packed in this moment. They are recognizing Jesus as Messiah. He quite literally had 
the people right where he wanted them. He could have made himself king at that point. They mm. probably could have overthrown at least Pontius Pilate out of there because the city was swollen with millions of pilgrims from all around the, the world. And yet Jesus comes in and he begins to weep over this. Why is he weeping on this day, Zach? What's, what's, what does Jesus know? Even though everything on the outside looks like the kingdom is about to come, like David was promised and Abraham was promised, why is the Messiah weeping on this day? He says, you're missing it. You're missing your day. You don't understand. You, you've missed what I was saying about what the kingdom of heaven will be like. Remember when Jesus kept saying the kingdom of heaven is like this, the kingdom of heaven is like that? And they would be like, this is a hard thing. We don't get it, right? And he says, look, I tried to explain to you, this time I'm not coming like that. This time I'm not coming to, to kick the door in and set up an iron throne and, and rule from on the planet in that way. Now, you know, when you read the Old Testament, you could you could excuse the Jews sometimes for not understanding that because sometimes promises about the end times are right next to promises about the near fulfillment of what Jesus was going to do. So I, I understand the confusion, but Jesus said, I have tried to explain to you that's not, I'm not here to do that. I'm not here to kick Rome out. I'm not here to be king. Remember, they would keep trying to make Jesus king and he would just like disappear, right? Because he says, no, we're not doing that right now. That he's weeping because he knew that they were their heart was not for the Lord. It was for the thing that they wanted. Mm-hmm. And it was a good thing, maybe even. Like you look at that and say, well, well, why wouldn't you want to be out from under Rome? Yeah, it was a good thing. It was, it was a, 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 it's no, there's no problem with wanting your nation to be free, with wanting your culture to be upheld. But they were so into that that they were about to literally kill Jesus because he was not going to fulfill the thing that they were hoping for. I'll take this a step farther. I think Jesus was weeping on that day because if they had received him as they ought to have received him, the kingdom would have come. Hmm. I Now, this is a, a dicey statement to make, so I don't mind hedging my bets a little bit on this here. But I think, it's, I think this is very... I think Jesus was making a legitimate offer of the kingdom to these people. Here's the, the wrinkle. Obviously, Jesus had to die for sins. That had yes. to happen. But I do not think it had to happen the way that it did. I mean, if you want, you know, obviously, if now you're we're in, be we're a, in pure counterfactual. If zone you're going to be, a, so, if you're going to yeah. be a determinist Christian, which I am uh, not a determinist, right. I believe in God's sovereignty, but I don't believe everything that had that did happen had to happen. Uh, yeah, then you say, well, it had to happen this way. It couldn't have happened any other way, perhaps. But I think Jesus is making a legitimate offer of the kingdom. There's a great book called uh, I think it's called Two Commissions that you can read. It's a short little book. And the guy explains how the first half of Jesus's ministry is different from the second half. Because in the first half, Jesus was telling the disciples, go out and tell everybody the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mm. The second half, there's a very sharp break where Jesus starts talking about the death of the Messiah. He starts speaking in parables so that the people can understand him. And this thing in all the synoptic gospels happens when they begin to say Jesus is casting out demons by Beelzebub, when they commit that unforgivable sin, that they're attributing the work of God uh-huh. to Satan. And and I don't know if I agree with everything that guy says, but the point that I think you need to realize is if Israel had received Jesus as the Messiah and said, we are ready to receive you, after his death and his resurrection, need there have been this, this what we're going to call the desolation of Israel that has taken place for thousands of years now? I don't think so. I, I think that God knew what was going to happen. But I think if you look at what Jesus says in Matthew 23, verses 37 through 39, these y'all are some of the most significant verses related to Israelology in the Bible. Jesus said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. 
the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing? Jesus is weeping because the children of Israel could have received their Messiah and were not willing. They didn't want it. They wanted, as you said, Zach, a political king. They didn't want the spiritual and everlasting deliverance that Jesus came to bring. So in verse 38, Jesus says, See, your house is left to you desolate, Mm. which is a key word. We're going to pick this up in a minute. That word desolate was intentional by Jesus. 4 verse 39, I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Okay, just sidebar. That That verse there is enough for you to understand that there's still some sort of plan that God has for Israel. Of like, forget course. all the other verses, because that verse right there, it, remember we've been talking about guys like, what, what is what is God doing with Israel? Look, that verse is the little crux of the, that's the whole thing, right? He says, look, I yep. came, I, I was fulfilling all of my promises to you. I said I would come, I would say, I will, here's the kingdom, do you want it? And you said, no, so I'm going to judge which he did. There's massive judgment and desolation that happened immediately that happened in 70 AD that continued to happen. I think we can, there's no problem looking historically and see that the Jews continued to be judged throughout history leading up to today. Yeah. And yet he says, you won't see me again, not ever until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Has that happened yet? Has Israel as a nation ever said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? No. No. They've not. <laughs> Therefore, there is something unhappened <laughs> that needs to happen. Rega- between Israel and their Messiah, there's unfinished business. And that's what this whole you know thing for future Israel is, is that this business needs to be finished. Yes. And, and this is what I'm saying here. The fact that Jesus said, you have to say, what do they have to say? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That is exactly what they said on Palm Sunday. Right. Well, but yes. So why is he saying that? Uh uh Because as you said, and as I took it a little step further, they did. It's kind of like when you're a kid, like you didn't mean it. Mm -hmm. You, You did not mean that like you should have meant it. You were prepared for me as long as I was there to get Rome off your back and give everything back to you the way that you'd want it. You were not prepared to die to yourself and come to me. You were not prepared for the crucifixion. You're not prepared for what this was going to mean. You're not even prepared to receive me after I have risen from the dead. Because on Sunday, mm-hmm. you're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Yet on Friday, you're going to be chanting aloud, crucify him. Yeah. And that's what took place. All the things that had prophesied about what would happen when the Messiah would come should have taken place, taken, taken place when Jesus came. Yeah. They should have received their kingdom. They didn't. And that is the ultimate and most grievous sin that Israel has ever committed. I, I have to read this because I think this is like, you know, the, the crack of doom in the Bible. And every time I read it, it, it gives me chills. And I read it every single uh, Good Friday. And everybody's probably getting tired of it, church. But I have to do this. When Jesus is standing trial before Pontius Pilate, crown of thorns, flogged, calling for his death, Paul, Pilate says in uh, John nineteen fifteen. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. Mm -hmm. They were more willing to have the boot of Rome stamp on their face, right? Than to receive their king because he was coming humbly riding on a donkey and that wasn't the king that they wanted. Yep. And they said, may his blood, when Pilate washed his hands and said, his blood is not on my hands. They said, his blood be upon us and upon our children. Yeah. 
goodness gracious to say something like that over a man you knew to be innocent. Never it was, mind and it was a curse. It was, it was a curse that was outside the law. I never thought about that until just now. That was a curse that was outside the law. Even God said, I'll, I'll curse you for your sin, but I won't curse your children. I won't make your children suffer for it. And they went further than God's judgment would and said, curse our kids for it. We don't care. Like, that's what we want to do. Right. It's wild. So that act of nailing Jesus to the cross was the supreme act of the rejection of Jesus by the children of Israel. And in case you're not comfortable with that and say, well, Jesus had to die on the cross, etc. Okay, fine. But when the apostles began to preach in the book of Acts, Israel rejected him again. They rejected Uh the gospel. And that that is the message of the book of Acts over and over again, bringing the gospel to the Jews, the Jews not receiving it, but the Gentiles receiving it. And this is actually how the book of Acts ends. After Paul preaches the gospel to the Jews in Rome, very significant, right? Paul made one statement, Acts 28, 25. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand and indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. With their ears they can barely hear. Their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Therefore, Paul said, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. Mm-hmm. So the rejection of Jesus, depending on how you want to describe it, I, I'm perfectly comfortable with saying that they, I mean, duh, right? They should never have crucified Jesus. But even after the death of Jesus and the resurrection, when the gospel was extended to the Jews, they rejected it. And I believe that is because what Jesus said on Matthew 23, that this rejection, this, shall we say, impending rejection is going to lead to a lot worse for you than just the guilt that you yeah. ought to incur. The first over this. persecutors of the church were the Jews. You know that that was where persecution came from. Before Rome figured out what the heck the church was and whether they liked it or not, <clears throat> the Jerusalem the persecution came from Jerusalem immediately. That's what that's what scattered the church. It still does in that part of the world. Yeah, well, hundred percent. And that's yeah, I want to get into that actually in a minute because this is an important thing for people to understand. Is you know, we're talking about dispensationalism, and I. We've been talking talking up our dispensational brothers and explaining why this is a biblical solid position to hold, Tyler. I want to I want to bring some warnings for a minute if that's all right. Cuz we're at this stage in this process where we're talking about what is the current status of Israel, right? That's in the past what was going on. Yeah, what, we're, we're kind of transitioning to to where they stand. You know, it's where they stand now, right? There are many there is a grave error that I see dispensationalists now making frequently when we discuss Israel now. And that is, I'm just going to use the word, we have a tendency to idolize Israel. What do I mean when I say that? So the current status of it, we have to understand biblically that Israel is currently, her house lies to her desolate, spiritually. Do you understand? Where are they? Like if, you know, in Ezekiel, that passage where he says there's the valley of the dry bones and first I'm going to bring the bones back and then the bones are rattling and then the, you know, the the bones are going to be knitted together, but there's flesh on them, but there's no spirit. That's currently where they are. They do not have God's spirit corporately as a nation, right? I mean, obviously there's some people there who believe, but the, the vast, you and this, I say this like gently and lovingly because there's some people who don't grasp this. Like the vast majority of the people in Israel do not know God. They do not know God. And that includes, especially includes the religious Jews. We, we yeah. need to understand as, and I'm just sharing this as somebody who, like you said, I, I have a little experience here. And I've been there. I've interacted with these people. You study the history. These are people who their religion has been formed 
by centuries of people studying the Old Testament to refute the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. That's right. That's that's who the rabbis are. The medieval rabbis and the modern rabbis are all studying to try and determine why we are Jews and not Christians. Yes. That that and and you know you can read all this stuff. I'm not just making this up. The the current spiritual tenor of that nation is, is a hard place. Go ask some of your messianic brothers and sisters, you know, Jews who have come to to faith in Jesus. Go ask them how it is to live there. Some of their biggest persecutors are still the Jews who who push back against them. And this is getting better marginally. But I mean, there's there's you know, was a young man years several years ago who opened up a pipe bomb at his house because he was a messianic and and his he his family was literally attacked by ultra orthodox Jews. Yeah. Um and this this is a thing that happens. Th- this is not a place you can't you can't make the mistake of looking at Israel as a place where, well, because they're God's chosen people, what they do is right. You are not automatically saved if you're a Jew. You still have to believe in Jesus. Not only are you not automatically saved, which is, by the way, a heresy that some people teach. That Oh, well, it's different I, I'd for— I'd say that is heresy. Yeah, honestly. it's different for Jews. No, it's not. There's no—salvation the, comes through Jesus. Yeah. That's where it comes, right? We, this is central to what we believe. So not only— Kind of salva- like the— Yeah, it's the whole the, thing, the, right? Yeah, it's all yeah. of it. <laughs> so so the, that is a heresy. And you hear the kind of the, the strength in my voice and insisting in this, but like— the, not only that, but you are not obligated to look at anything that the Jews do individually or nationally and say, this is good because they're the Jews. Yeah. Right. You know, and, and dispensationalists fall into this trap. They say, oh, well, we have to defend Israel politically because everything they're doing as a nation is right. Well, nothing that the Jews have ever done has been right. That's why they got judged. The Jews are a stu- like uh, I, they are a stubborn and stiff-necked people. It's okay, I can say that. I have Jewish ancestry, right? Like they You've they got a Bible in front of you. Yeah, I mean that. these are these are they they are a people in rebellion against God. It should not surprise you, dispensational brother and sister, who believe that they still ha- are part of God's plan, to see what they're doing currently and scratch your head sometimes and say, "Well, that doesn't seem right." Yeah, and we will in a, in uh, might have to be next time. No, that's fine. Uh, talk about yeah. like I you mean, know what, what bits of Israel do we support and which yeah. ones do we not? Uh, but I, I'd say, too, for those of you that are of Jewish heritage and are a Christian and feel the call of your of your mm. you know ancestors so to you know go back to your roots, <laughs> yeah, don't go back away from Jesus, you know, and that don't go back, oh, I want to I really want to get back to my Jewish roots here. That's fabulous. But Jesus is still your Messiah. You want to go back to your Jewish roots? Go to Jesus because he's you know he's yeah. the one that is, that yeah. is the root far and branch back we going? of David. Yeah, right? We're going I back mean, to Egypt. On. I mean, come on, let's yeah. let's live and, in freedom, right? And I would say that some Jewish churches and Christians do a very terrible disservice by walking around like they're a higher class of Christian than those who are Gentiles, which is absolutely unacceptable. We should not even have Jewish Christian congregations and Gentile congregations. Oh, all right. Go uh, on. You, no, I'm go serious. On. I'll, yeah, I'll go to bat for this one. Yeah, yeah. We are one in Christ Jesus. Yes. And if well, we want to have a, a congregation for Jewish people, no, sorry, it doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. You don't get to do that for Gentiles or for white people or for black people or for Americans. or for like, you, We're one. Mm-hmm. We're supposed to be together. And if you're worshiping in such a way that excludes somebody else, you've missed the point. And our theology that we're teaching here should not be uh, given to, to any sort of thing like that. And I'll say also, Paul even, Paul, right, the the Pharisee, the, the Christian and the Pharisee, would even go so far as to say that the Jews are the enemy of the cross. Because they are. 
They don't want anything to do with Jesus. So if we're going to be going back to our roots or, or trying to love the nation that God has chosen, the best way that you can do that is by coming to Jesus Christ. Yes. Not by getting involved with traditions and cultures that are neutral at best. And again, you know, the current state, and I'm not, <clears throat> I, as far as I am aware before the Lord, I'm not speaking, you know, out of turn here or trying to tear anybody down. I'm relaying to you, the listener, what I have heard from godly, wise, seasoned believers in Jesus in the church in Israel, who when you go talk, you go talk to them and you ask them, what is the current state of the, of the, of the church broadly in Israel? They say it's fractured and it's unbelievably self-absorbed. Hmm. And what I mean by self-absorbed is they say for so long, we've been told that we're special and that we don't have to do things like other churches do. And they say, now we're realizing that we have these muscles that we haven't used and we need to exercise them. Muscles like missions, muscles like we, we actually need to be giving grace, not just the law, right? We, we need to be, you know, muscles that should have been there all along, but there's weakness in that church. And again, I, I, I am relaying what I have heard from others. There's weakness in the, in the church because the, as of yet, they are still a stubborn people. And even, and there's even struggles with the people who come to faith who are still, imagine living there and you're still trying to parse through. Well, but, but this is really genuinely my culture. I'm not inventing this. Like this is where I live. Right. But also Paul is telling me that I need to lay some of this aside. Like it's, it is hard, you know, to figure those things out. So I, I, I know we're all talking about some pretty inside baseball, but these things are important. Why? Because when you go to Israel and I would look, I would super, super encourage you to go to Israel if you can. When you go to Israel and you see these things, the important thing to remember is that this is, God's work there is not finished. Just nope. because in 1948 there's a nation now, that's great. We're, we're glad about that because it's it's an evidence that God fulfills his promises. But God is not done yet. And, you, and it's, I think it is foolish for us as believers to point at, look, the desert's blooming and they're making lots of money and, and, and they're beating their enemies. So that means that God is doing something. Friend, there's people dying and going to hell in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem and cities that where their name, you know, Tel Aviv is a new one, but cities where their names are in your Bible and there's still people serving other gods you know, Buddhists, Jews and Baha'i Jews and new age Jews and hardcore religious Jews who still don't know their Messiah. So that's the work we need to be about, right? Not like trying to preserve. Do you see what I'm saying? Like not trying to preserve some dead end that God is trying to rescue them from. Yeah. And, and you know, we, we've kind of gotten into this a little early, but we are going to talk a little bit more about yeah. like how to, how to handle these things. Because if you're some weird anti-Semite listening to this stuff like see see uh, they got to get the jews you get out of here man you're <laughs> yeah. you're, uh, you're on the wrong podcast <laughs> however we, we do need to to make this distinction so all right that that's a that's a, some great words there zach so let me now shore this up with some bible here yes so jesus said your house is left to you desolate okay they rejected their messiah that's indisputed now what does that mean what does that mean mm. well let's look at this first of all it was prophesied if you look at Daniel chapter 9, well, a little history before we get to the prophecy. In 70 AD, Emperor, well, he was the general at the time, Titus, came into Jerusalem and destroyed the city, right? Israel rebelled again, and they came in and they destroyed the city. I find it amazing that that is 40 years, more or less, after the, the crucifixion of Jesus. Mm. And if you go, hold to a 33 AD date of the crucifixion of Jesus, the siege of Masada took place in 73 AD which the siege of Masada was the final holdout of the Jewish rebellion where they all committed suicide rather than be defeated by yep. the, the Romans. Uh, 
now, that that is widely understood and should be as the desolation that Jesus was promising. That desolation is coming to you. Your house is going to be scattered all over the world. Yeah, Put they, it they this ripped way. the temple apart, literally. It, yeah, know, yeah, brick by brick, yeah. it said, right? Now, the Old Testament... God gave them hundreds of years of grace and second chances before sending Babylon. Right. In the New Testament, they killed Jesus 40 years. Right. And they were done. That should show you the 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 level of sin, obviously, right, of the of the rejection of the Messiah. But this had all been foretold. Mm. If you look in Daniel chapter 9, the famous prophecy of the 70 weeks. This is where Daniel was told that from the time the uh the decree to rebuild the Jerusalem had come about that there were going to be 70 sevens. So uh-huh. we call them weeks. All right. It's a set of seven, but this is off by just about everybody understood to be weeks of years. And it says that there would be 62 weeks or sorry, seven weeks and then 62 weeks. So seven plus 62, 69 weeks. Then this is one of the, the absolutely definite timestamps. We know So after the 62 weeks, an anointed one, a Messiah, shall be cut off and shall have nothing. Okay. Messiah shall be cut off and have nothing. That would happen after the 69th week. So the Messiah, of course, is Jesus. He was cut off after the 69th week of history, of Israel's history. There's only seven years to go. Remember that. One week to go. Mm-hmm. But what would happen after that in Daniel 9.26? The people of the prince who is to come. This is not Jesus. This is the Antichrist. The people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Remember I told you that word desolation was important? Jesus said after the, on Palm Sunday, desolation, your house is left to you desolate because of what you're about to do. Messiah was cut off. The people of the prince who is to come, meaning the Antichrist people, came in, destroyed the city, destroyed the sanctuary, and there was desolation upon Israel. Yeah. That was prophesied that that would happen. So the the only thing that remains is the coming of the of the Antichrist. We'll talk about that. Um, probably looking more like next time as, as we get through <laughs> this here. But that's not the only thing. So that's what would happen physically. What was going to happen spiritually? This was also foretold. Yeah. But it's foretold allegorically. This is a proper allegory, by the way. Not we're still interpreting the Bible literally here. In Hosea chapter three. You know the story of Hosea, uh, Zach. If you should, if you could trade places with any uh, biblical figure, I don't know if Hosea would be at the top of your list. He would might it? be at the uh, near the bottom <laughs> of my list. What actually. did God ask Hosea to do? Uh, well, God said, "Look, I want you." And this is some of these prophetic signs. I'm reading Ezekiel right now, and these prophetic signs that God sends the prophets Quit to. Quit stalling. Like, what did He ask you're him like, to do? Dude, this is weird, right? So, uh, <laughs> uh, Hosea gets the one where God's like, "Go pick out a prostitute and marry her." There you go. And Hosea goes. Okay, and then God says, and she's not gonna be faithful to you. Like <laughs> she's gonna, she's gonna run around on you, and she's gonna have children that aren't yours, and that's just what your life is gonna be like. And so that that was literally as a as a sign to the people of what how they were behaving towards the Lord. He had an unfaithful prostitute in his house who was you know running around on him, hustling you know like on him as a, as a symbol to people. Yeah, because Israel is being spiritually unfaithful. Yeah. Now here's how the story ends of Hosea. Uh-huh. Hosea chapter three, verse one. It's a five verse chapter. So we knew the whole thing. It's so important. I, and I will say, I've never heard this passage taught in relation to this doctrine. I do not know why, because I feel like it is so clear to me. So if somebody has, great. I'm just saying, I came across across this myself and I was 
flabbergasted. But Hosea chapter three, verse one, the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So the other half of this is not just that Israel was unfaithful, but that God was still faithful. So Hosea three, verse two, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethek of barley. He bought her. What does that mean? He bought her out of the slave market. He bought yeah. her from her pimp, basically. Mm-hmm. He had to go back and buy his own wife back. Imagine the shame upon Hosea there. Now, what does this symbolize? It symbolizes, obviously, the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And this part is well understood. Everybody preaches this this way. That Jesus Christ loved us even though we were yet sinners. And he right. died on the cross. And he ransomed us from the slave market of sin. But this is specifically referring not just to everybody, but to Israel. So look at what Hosea says to his wife when they get home. Mm-hmm. Verse 3, I said to her, you must dwell as mine. For many days, you shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. What is he saying? We are going to be married, but it is going to be some time before we come together in a sexual relationship as husband and wife. Because you don't go cheat on me and I'm not going to be with you either. Because it's going to, it's going to, I mean, that makes sense, right? It's going to take some time for this relationship to heal and, and be ready there, right? So that's what's going on here. Four, verse four, he's going to explain why. Why are we going to be together? I've ransomed you back. I've bought you back as my bride, but we're not going to consummate this relationship. Why? Verse four, for the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, Mm -hmm. without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. That there would come a day when God would redeem Israel, but there would be many days without a king, without a sacrifice, without anything. That, I think, is describing the same time that Jesus prophesied, that Daniel prophesied, what I think should be called the desolation of Israel. That's and an in verse five, description of where we are now. I, it's, it is. Yeah, it's exactly right. I mean, like, and we and we know that it's talking about right now because it tells us how it's going to end. Right. Verse five says, "Afterward, after they dwell many days without king or prince or sacrifice or pillar, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king." Reference to Jesus. Mm -hmm. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Meaning at at the end of the world, after they've dwelt without sacrifice or king, they will return, seek God, seek their Messiah, come in fear to the Lord in the last days. So that's what's going to happen at the end. We will get to that. But the whole point I'm trying to make is that this had been prophesied, that Israel would reject their Messiah That even when redemption had been purchased, their relationship with God would not be what it should be until the last days. And and again, this is that's what we're seeing now. This is why it's so important, and I think easy. The Lord wants to make these things not easy, but straightforward. You read the word, and you say, "Okay, well, God says that in the last days they're going to do this." Has that happened yet? No. No. Okay. Guess we're not in the last days yet, right? I, if, 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 or more properly, I guess that th- there is something yet to happen in the last days that has not yet happened with the children of Israel. Have they yet returned to seek the Lord? Have they corporately, as a nation, said we have made a mistake? This was our Messiah. No. There's yep. probably I don't know that this is true, but there it's entirely possible that there's more people that believe in the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi, who's a false Messiah who you know died in Brooklyn. 
and you can find people who are disciples of him when you of go to the it's Brooklyn. I mean, yeah, of course. But you can find people who are disciples of him when you go into the airport in Tel Aviv trying to get you to be Lubavitchers. There's there's plenty of those and very few Jews who believe in Jesus as their Messiah. So they have not yet corporately as a people come back to seek you know, their Messiah. And so to me, that it's pretty stands to reason then that, well, that's the Bible says that's going to happen. There's unfinished business. Yes. You know, the the Lord has still got work that he's going to do. So here's what I think we'll do. We'll finish up today. We've still got some time, but we're going to finish today talking about where Israel stands now. And Mm -hmm. then next time we'll do a, uh, a podcast where we talk about what, how they're going to be redeemed in the end. So uh, let's, that's just for our sake to know what we're (laughs) going to finish talking about here. (laughs) So we believe that they're living during the time where Daniel said desolations are decreed, mm. Jesus said, your house is left to you desolate. Hosea said, after redemption, you will dwell many days without a king or prince, a sacrifice or pillar. Right. Paul gives it to us straight, like he often does. <laughs> uh, Romans 11.25, Paul sums this up. And this is this is another one of those like must-know verses in your Bible. Yeah. Paul says in Romans 11.25, lest you be wise in your own sight. <laughs> And boy, are there some people that are arrogant <laughs> on this topic. Man. Yes, there are. He's on talking both to ends, the Gentiles, yeah. man. There are so many, like, I, I don't understand how you can be an, a, a hater of the Jews and call yourself a Christian. And yet all of these weird, like, skinhead anti-Jewish groups always call themselves, like, the disciples of Christ or some weird thing like that. So, lest you get uppity, Gentiles, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. Here's a mystery for us. Here it is. Ready? There's a colon in the text. Here's what you need to know. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. There you have present judgment and a time for when it will end. Verse 26 says, after that, all Israel will be saved as it is written. But look at this. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. This is Paul, the Jew, the Israelite, the Pharisee, writing this down. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. What is a partial hardening? Well, it's hardening of the heart like Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Yeah. Where God says, fine, if that's the way you want it, then that's the way you're going to have it. Now, it's partial because Jews can be saved. Individual Jews, individual families, many Jews can be saved. But the Lord is saying, I am withholding a national revival Mm. from Israel until, he says, the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Zach, that is the modern day, right now, status of Israel, is their hearts have been hardened to the gospel. Yeah. I mean, so Which is what you it, were describing yeah, a few minutes ago. It's some of the hardest evangelistic ground. I mean, go ask the folks there who are, are godly people, believers, who are reaching out to their brothers and sisters. It is tough sledding. <laughs> it just is. And <clears throat> I think... That's one of the reasons why, again, we shouldn't be surprised, though, to see that, like, because that's exactly what Scripture says. You've got people that just, they're, they have, and, and there is a reason for it. I mean, you can still go meet people in Israel who, part of their life experience is that German people with Gott mit uns on their belt buckle, which stands for God with us, you know, in German, put them through horror in, in the Holocaust and say, we're doing this because you killed Christ. Right now, that's that's all kinds of messed up. Like there's right, but yeah, but that's Hitler was a was a neo pagan. Yeah, he but but that was part of you know part of the Holocaust experience. So there are Jews who certainly came out of that and said, well, I'll, I'll be anything. And that's that is by the way, that is the current Jewish cultural understanding. It's beginning to change, but it it is current. Is you can be whatever you want, and be a Jew. <clears throat> 
You can be a hippie and be a Jew. You can be super left-wing and be a Jew. You can be a hardcore right-wing guy and be a Jew. You just can't believe in Jesus and be a Jew. That makes you not a Jew. And that's that's part of the testimony of so many Messianics is they felt like they were literally denying <clears throat> who they were to come to Jesus because that's what they've been taught growing up. If that isn't demonic influence, I don't know what is. Yeah. Is the whole the people of God, God's chosen people have been steeped now in this cultural thing for for th- literally thousands of years saying we can be whatever we want, but we just don't believe in that guy. Right. And we cannot I'll be careful how I say this, but I want to be clear how I say this. We, we, we cannot just blame the Christians for the way that they've mistreated Jews for the Jews' hardness of heart. It, it, it absolutely well, is that's a, no, yeah, it yeah, is yeah, a that's problem. Right, that's right. Obviously, the, the Holocaust yeah. was horrific. Of but I could just as easily come in and say that Christians also delivered them from the Holocaust yes, and gave course. them the, yes. the land of Israel back, right? Yeah, yeah. But, but yeah, I'm, I'm not excusing any any injustice that has ever been done towards anybody, least of all the Jews. However, what we know theologically is that that hardness of heart well predates the Holocaust. That, oh, that hardness of heart yeah. goes back to the days of the, of the, of the book of Acts, that Israel rejected before, their Messiah but, and God sovereignly judged them. Paul says in Thessalonians, wrath has come upon them. Yeah. And we have to know this. We have to know this. Otherwise, when we deal with with Israelites, when we deal with Jews, we're not going to know what we're getting ourselves into. Yeah. This is the status. It's desolate. We are currently, right now, living in the desolation of Israel. Mm. That has been prophesied by Daniel, by Hosea, by Jesus, and by Paul, yes. among others. The Deuteronomy talks about this, right? We could get into that. I mean, we could talk about this until the cows come home, guys, really. But they, they, they I, I like to think... You know, if you're talking to a Jewish person and they say, well, I just can't believe it. Because you hear this. If Messiah comes, the Torah says that we're going to know him, that he's going to set up a kingdom. And Jesus didn't set up a kingdom. This is my question for them. What do you think the appropriate punishment should be if Messiah did come and the Jews killed him? What do you think the punishment for such a person should be? Because we're living in it right now. That this is the desolation of Israel. But it's not just that, because look at what he says. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. We do not believe that the desolation of Israel is going to last forever. It's going to have an end. But this is the other piece. Talking about Old and New Covenant here, I want to talk now about where do the Gentiles fit into all of this. I've already got into this some. But the fact is, God, I mean, Zach, right? God had promised he was going to use Messiah and use Israel to reach all the nations, not just Israel, right? Well, that, that was, was the, the plan. The, pro- the plan, yeah, the promise, right? the plan, right? yeah. But Israel rejected Messiah. So what, what's going to happen to all these Gentiles? Israel rejected Messiah and throughout their history, they rejected that part of the plan too. Yes, it is. They kind of hardened their hearts and basically said, yeah, no, we're not doing that. I'm not going over to them. So God basically, and, and this is where I can have some sympathy with my brothers in Christ who are replacement theologians, is because there is a very clear theme in the New Testament of, I am not replacing you, but I am putting you on hold. I am partially hardening you. I am partially hardening you. And the main work that I will now do is with the nations and not you. That this is the problem is people get see that's that's what it, look see God started working through the Gentiles and God started doing all these things for the Gentiles. That means that now the Gentiles are the Jews. We're replaced God's chosen people. No, what it means is God said the very thing that you looked down your nose at that you said God, we are God's people. We are the children of Abraham. God said 
I can raise up children of Abraham from anywhere. And where yep. God chose to raise up children of Abraham was among the nations, yes. among the ethne, to, to the Gentiles. According he, to the promise yes. that was granted to Abraham. Not This is a, such an important distinction. And I don't want to dive off into this, but like many people say, well, we were grafted into the, the covenant. And when they say that, they mean the Mosaic covenant. No. Yeah. Gentiles mm-hmm. were grafted into the promise made to Abraham. Right. Sharers in that covenant, not in the one made to Moses, except as Moses was a continuation of what Abraham was. Because we were talking about this in Galatians, that Moses was to prepare us for Jesus, who would fulfill what had been done to Abraham, that Abraham's promise is greater than the covenant made to the law given to Moses. We've already talked about that. I don't want to dive oh, too yeah. far into it. Well, and so that means, right, that now what we are seeing reflects what we see in Scripture, what we should expect. Now the gospel is exploding all of the world has been for 2000 years it's ev- it's in places that people in Israel in 0 AD didn't know existed that we didn't even know existed exactly. until a few years ago R- right like it's it's the gospel <laughs> awesome. travels the world and yet it has not yet come back home to Jerusalem so to no have we replaced Israel no but the currently the way that God is working is that he is using the nations to advance his promise. He's bringing in the nations. It's the time for God to bring in the nations until what the Bible says is the fullness of the Gentiles is brought in. When that happens, God is going to not replace us again with the Jews. He's going to say, now you're time. You we've, we've done the work that I'm going to do. I'm going to place you on pause for a minute and I'm going to return to my people and finalize my work with them. Yeah. And Paul says that one of the reasons God did this is to provoke the Jews to jealousy. Yes. Is to see this whole world reveling in our prophecies and in our worship songs and our Messiah and using the word hallelujah and seeing the whole world go after this person, but not after us. This is so key, guys. And this is the difference between how a dispensationalist and a covenant theologian understands this. A covenant theologian says there is no more plan for Israel. I think it's pretty plain, as I just said, that there is still a plan for Israel. We'll talk about this next time. Uh, But today, what we're looking at is God is chosen to bring salvation to the world. Salvation which comes through the Jewish Hebrew Messiah, by the way, the (laughs) son of David, to the rest of the world through Gentiles. God started the church with the apostles and the and the Jews, but very, very quickly in the New Testament, the Gentiles overtook the Jews in terms of numbers, just sheer numbers. Yes. And this is a problem dealt with over and over again in the New Testament. Like, what are we, well, what, this kind was of unexpected. Big, it's kind of the big problem in the New Testament That's why Paul is what are we doing? the mystery. Yeah, like, yeah. what is going on here? And it's not, if you read Rome, uh, Romans 9, 10, 11, Paul's making it very clear. God has not abandoned his people who he never foreknew. Be. Yeah, of course and not. if you read those passages like in response to your friend you were discussing earlier, Paul even says, Jews according to the flesh. He's talking about the actual Jews. Like This is why you interpret the Bible literally. When it says Jews, it means Jews. <laughs> like, God is doing this, this work of salvation and taking the good news to the world prior to the return of Jesus through the Gentiles. What had been left, we talked about this before, that when God chose Abraham, The rest of the nations entered something the Bible calls the time of ignorance, Mm -hmm. the dispensation of ignorance. Then Paul says in Acts 1730, in Athens, which was the center of philosophy and culture of the day, right? He says in Acts 1730, an amazing announcement. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now 
He commands all people everywhere to repent. What is he saying? The times of ignorance are over. That right. dispensation has ended. I don't know how you, you can interpret this otherwise. <laughs> Paul said God was doing it this way with you, meaning he was being patient with you and, allow, and overlooking the fact that you did not have the truth. It doesn't mean that they were all saved. We've already talked about that at length. But Paul says, but now things are different. Now everybody's got to repent because the Messiah came. The key, the, the one that we were looking for from Genesis 3.15 has come. And now everybody has to repent and put their faith in Jesus Christ. All of you Gentiles, there's no more excuses. There's no more patience. This is what everybody must do. So this is the time we're living in now. The church age. The 70th week, the final week of Israel, that's 70 years from Daniel chapter 9, remember, has not started yet. We'll talk about that more in detail next time. I, I hate it. I have to keep pushing it off. But the, the final year, the final tribulation period is, is seven years long. That's Israel's final week. We are now in this, what you might call a parenthesis, what you might call an interruption. It's like when the CD or the record is skipping. Well, the Lord, and yeah. it's not to say that what's happening now is not significant, but the desolation of Israel is also the church age, that, that, that grace is being shown to the whole world where we get to experience the blessings and the glory of the Messiah and his kingdom without it actually having been realized that right now, the time of the church is the best time to be alive, but it is not what is going to come, which will really be the best time to be alive. Yeah, no, absolutely. And like it, it, that's why it's so important <clears throat> to have your old, your New Testament in one hand when you interact with Israel today, because so much of what you read in the New Testament is still happening. <laughs> you go to the New Testament and you, you read, well, there's this controversy about how Jewish new Gentile converts yeah, it's have the to same be dispensation. still <laughs> going on, man. Like you, all those things are still happening. And so, yeah, it's, it's it, like we said right at the beginning, right about talking about the politics. We've got to start from a strong biblical foundation on this stuff because it's very easy to get swayed emotionally and, and passionately and politically and all that by this stuff. But we need to understand, well, where are we talk about all the time? Um, the prophetic time clock, right? Where is the clock right now? Or my dad always uses the phrase, I need the map of the mall, right? You are here. <laughs> this is, this is where we are. And once we know that, a lot of the, these thorny problems become at least a little easier because we understand, well, this is where we're at. Dispensationally, this is what's going on. Oh, look, that over there is what it says here is going to happen when we are here, right? And, and that can help you out a little bit because it's very easy to get confused with some of this stuff if you are listening to folks who kind of tell you, well, you know, it's all kind of vague and we don't know, right? Basically, It's, it's not. I, no, I, I truly it don't It takes a little bit of extra work, but y'all, it's, it's all right there in scripture like that. The Lord has, as this is what I'm doing, and this is what's happening right now. They rejected their Messiah. So the Lord has poured out judgment upon them, first of all, physically, by driving them out of their nation for thousands of years. And secondly, spiritually, by saying, I'm going to harden your hearts against the truth until such time as I see fit to sovereignly bring you back to myself. Your plan is on pause while I save the rest of the Gentiles. Exactly. And Zach, the last thing I want to talk about here, just briefly, uh, next week, I think we'll start with... Uh, We'll start with Israel coming back into their land and the significance of that. But right now, I just want to talk about the right now here. Uh, I said earlier that I do think it is appropriate for most of Israel's promises to be uh, applied, applied, shall we say, to the church. And I, I'll explain why now. Because 
we are living in, in this is such a, a catchphrase now, and I don't love every implication of this buzzword, but I'm going to use it because it is a rather handy way to describe it. People call it the now and the not yet. Yes. That we yes. have right now, I think a better phrase is comes from the old hymn, Blessed Assurance. We are living in what you call now a foretaste of glory divine. Paul mm -hmm. says we have the first fruits of the Spirit. We have tasted the beginning of what is going to happen when Jesus literally returns. However, right. we don't get to experience the fullness of it. Right. This is so key to know that we will say, well, we're living in a glorious time and, and the kingdom has come. Well, in one sense it has uh -huh. because Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. The kingdom of God is among you, right? If you read your Old Testament, I mean, come on, the kingdom has boundaries. Like he tells you how big it's going to be. Yes. Right? It has a capital city. It has all these things. So are all those symbolic only? No, they're not. No. We're waiting. I mean, look at the book of Revelation. We'll talk about this next time. Jesus is indeed going to return. Matthew 24, Jesus in the Olivet Discourse, talks about what's going to happen with the kingdom in the future. Well, and you talk about this all the time. Were, were the previous passages symbolic? When it no, said, no, is not. Jesus <laughs> going to come to Bethlehem? Was that symbolic Bethlehem? When it said Jesus is going to come riding in a donkey, was it a, an allegorical donkey? No, right? So, and thankfully our salvation wasn't either of those things either. So shouldn't we expect that these future promises or the continuity of all these promises about, why would all of a sudden the land promises be symbolic? Why would the promises about nationhood and revival be just symbols? Well, the other ones weren't symbols. Or if they were given symbolically, they were symbols of a real thing. Yeah. And we expect the same thing to happen with these other promises. So Paul says in Romans 8, uh, 23, he says, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Mm -hmm. You can't get away from this, that there is a future aspect to the Christian life, that we are waiting for things to really come into their own. We're waiting for Jesus to return. We're waiting for the kingdom. We're waiting for the glorification of the body. We're waiting for uh, Peter, for example. Peter loves to talk about salvation as a present or future thing. Paul talks about salvation primarily as a past thing, and it's all of that. Right. It's, you know, it has happened, it is happening, and it is going to happen. You have been saved, you are being saved, and you are going to be saved. But there's this future aspect. That what Jesus has done by giving us his Holy Spirit, which, I mean, that's a whole other amazing thing we could talk about. <laughs> by giving us the Holy Spirit, we taste the beginnings of the kingdom. Right. We see the power of the kingdom at work through the miraculous works of the Holy Spirit. We see the transforming, sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. We have fellowship with God like never before by the Holy Spirit. So in that sense, the kingdom has come. And you can say that anywhere the church goes, anywhere a Christian goes, anywhere Jesus is exalted and his word is obeyed, right. that's the kingdom of God. But <laughs> right. that is not, not the only the capital K kingdom that Correct. is going to come someday. Correct. In other words, we're like harbingers of the kingdom. Like we're bringing. We're, we're exactly that. We're <clears throat> ambassadors, right. the Bible says. We're bringing, right, exactly like an ambassador does. You know, there's an ambassador in China, you know, who has, where there's a little U.S. embassy and it's got like a flag. But that doesn't mean yet, right? I'll say yet. It's not necessarily our plan. But that doesn't mean that the United States is now over China. It just means that, hey, right here where this flag is planted, this is now the United States. Even if in a symbolic yes. sense, in the same way, when you go to your workplace, you, you in your marriage and in your family, when you behave a certain way, when you follow the Lord, when you raise your kids to follow the Lord, when you enter your community, when your church sets up and starts to reach out, that is you saying, hey, for right now, this dark area is being retaken 
by the kingdom. Now, does that mean that the kingdom has come in its full sense? No, but it means, hey, this is an embassy now. Yes. Right, right here, you can treat this like the kingdom because that's how it's going to operate. And you extend those borders as you continue to advance the kingdom spiritually. And knowing that one day the Lord is going to make that reality, not, not that it's not reality now, meaning the Lord is going no, to physically an, an come and be present. Reality, yes, the correct. consummation. Right. So this is important because dispensationalists can <clears throat> be accused and often sometimes fall into this uh-huh. of <laughs> focusing so much on the future aspects of the promises that we yes. don't ever talk about the present aspects of the promises. That's true. Classic one, and I like to get into this because some people get snarky on this one. I don't <laughs> like snark. Jeremiah 29, 11, right? Mm-hmm. For I know the plans that I have for you, plans to, you know, hurt, not to hurt, uh, hurt you, but to bless you and a hope in the future. And you get two kinds of people. You get the one person that says, well, every promise in the Bible is for me. So I'll claim that. Or... Here's the funny thing. We, I arrive at the same place as the person that says that. Sure. But you get another kind of person that says, well, that promise was made for Israel being removed from the land. And it's ultimately an eschatological promise of the hope in a future that someday God will restore Israel again. So you can't really claim that for yourself. And they're no fun at parties. Yeah, (laughs) that guy is just a delight, isn't he? Well, here's what I'll say. First of all, all of scripture, if it's describing God's character, Uh then just go ahead and take that one to the bank, right? But second of all, I am a an ambassador of the kingdom of heaven. And Uh I experience the kingdom of heaven in my heart every day by the Holy Spirit. And if God was willing to give a hope and a future to his children of Israel in the land that he was going to give them, then that promise applies to me in my heart as I'm waiting for that kingdom to come in a greater sense. So not only does it apply to me, it applies more to me than it does. Right. So now can you see the subtle difference? You're still respecting the context of the text and you're still, you're not saying, well, this doesn't matter for Israel anymore because I've replaced them. So anytime I see Israel, it just is me now. You're saying, this is what God was doing in this dispensation. And now the same God, same character, same same promises, same will is doing this even crazier thing in this dispensation. How do you know that? Well, you look at his word and you see that he says that was before, but this is now. Read the book of Hebrews, right? So it's yes. it's 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 respecting the context, but it's also then saying also you're then now that you know the context, you're allowed to gently spiritualize because scripture gives you that permission. Yes, because we spiritualize it because the Holy Spirit Aha. Uh-huh. As, yes. as literally Correct. spiritualized yeah. the, the promises that are going to be fulfilled literally and actually and physically are now being brought to our hearts spiritually now. So yeah, there is a distinction, but if you read the old Testament, like th- there are certain things that you got to be like, okay, God promised he would give Israel their land forever. Don't spiritualize that. But I mean, because it says land, but if he comes in and he says, I'm, I've got a plans to do you good. I mean, is that not true for a Christian? Give me a break. Right? Right, right, right. So this is why I believe that a dispensationalist not only is interpreting their Bible the right way, but they gain all the benefits that these other theologies think that they we're missing out on because of our interpretation. Mm-hmm. There is a fullness here that because the church is experiencing the greatest revelation of God's kingdom ever right now in our hearts and in our lives, while we wait for the real thing, the whole entirety of God's promises have become opened up to us. Yes. We interpret them according to the way they were given. Of course, we believe that Israel will receive these things. But right now, Israel's heart is hardened because of the rejection of their Messiah. And in the meantime, we're groaning and waiting for the fulfillment. But boy, oh boy, what you get to receive now is something that no one else has ever experienced. As even the angels 
are amazed. They desire to look into the things that Christ has done for us because we are worshipers of the Messiah. He's in heaven and he said, it's even better for you that I go away. One day he will return. That's true too. But Jesus said right now with the Holy Spirit present, this is the best time to be alive. So this desolation of Israel is the church age with all of its attendant blessings and glories and promises. Yep. And what we're probably going to talk about more next time is, okay, but what about all the unfinished work though? Right. But there's some really crazy physical promises to Israel. There's some really crazy physical promises to the church. There's some promises of a, you know, this is why we're not, you know, what is it? I always mix it up preterist or amillennial where it's like, yeah, but this can't be the the real millennial kingdom, right? Like, look at it. This isn't it, right? And the answer yeah, is, of course... the post-millennial view. That yeah. Things are going to get better and better, and then Jesus will come back. And the answer, of course, is joyfully, no, this isn't it yet. We're not there yet. There is real, amazing, incredible promises of God's physical reign on the planet that will happen, and we'll kind of talk about what that will look like, both for the church and for the Jews. Yeah. Um, and as a, I point. mean, my answer to that, as a, as a pre-trib, uh, pre-millennial... Uh, dispensational theologian here, the answer, well, don't you believe, because some, some people get into this, and I don't like this. This is real. When they say, the rapture's going to come. I'm not worried about this. now. we don't got to fix anything here. Oh, that's we don't, wrong. The rapture, yeah, no, that's no, wrong. no, 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 <laughs> no. That's lazy. Here, here's my answer to you. I believe that until the rapture comes, the church is unstoppable. So yep. get out of my way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I believe. You, yeah. This is so many people, they have something. First of all, it's the wrong way to do theology. You have a certain application that you is so dear to you, you look for a theology to fit it. <laughs> I believe that yeah. the, the dispensational, pre-trib, pre-mill has all of those things. I can properly accommodate all the scriptures about the coming apostasy and the falling away in the great tribulation and also believe that because the Spirit has come, the church is unstoppable, walking in grace until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Until God has finished his work now, there is nothing that can stop the church. Yeah, Yeah, we'll be persecuted. Yeah, we're going to suffer. But ultimately, it's all going to be for the kingdom of God. It's going to be for our good. So, yeah. yeah. The restrainer is still working, which means, like Jesus said, it's the the day. Like, so work. Well, it's the day, right? We still have this opportunity. So the night is coming when no one can work. Yeah, go hard now. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a... That's about half of what we wanted to cover today. <laughs> uh, we wanted to talk about the future, where Israel is going. We wanted to address you know, what we believe about them. And we certainly did. But we, we kind of got up to what happened at the cross and where they stand now. Next week, we're going to have to take some time. We're, we'll, we'll begin, I believe, with uh, the coming back into the land mm-hmm. and then what's yep. going to happen in the future. And that's going to be quite a, a subject to discuss uh, because it— it comes up all the time and you know, there's all sorts of accusations that are brought up against Israel for this that are unfair. Sure. And uh, we'll, we'll talk more about how to assess things e- even politically because it touches on the political here. Yeah. Um, but we're also going to look into the future. We'll look to the rapture, the tribulation, the second coming of Christ. We're going to look what happens when the desolation of Israel ends and the glorification is going to be even greater. Uh, so stick around for next time. This subject has uh, been, been a lot of fun to discuss the old and new, new covenants together. Uh, and uh, we're going to get into some prophecy next time, which is going to be pretty cool, Zach. So Always good. Any uh, any final thoughts for us as we sign off? No, this is one of my favorite favorite things to talk about, most exciting things to talk about, and yeah, also maybe coincidentally where the most conflict is sometimes. So it's always fun. I hope you guys are enjoying it. Um, I hope that you guys are realizing that this stuff is knowable and understandable. Yeah. It's, it's always so encouraging to me that God gives us answers to these things. Maybe you, we don't get every detail, but God wanted us to we know. Get a lot of details. God <laughs> wanted us to know, right? And, and even about things that we look around in the world, God wants you to know and have an answer and an understanding. So Yes, he does. And, and 
And I know that this is a controversial subject, and I don't always like to get into the controversies if they're not profitable. The reason I like to wade into this one is because there is so much scripture for me to stand on here. Yeah. I am perfectly comfortable having this conversation because I know what the word says. And I want you to know what the word says too. Mm-hmm. And that's why we're having these podcasts. And uh, I just want to remind everybody one more time. Uh, the new book is out, Difference Makers, a 21-day devotional. This is uh, put out through Calvary Chapel Trustful and Ironworks Ministries. Uh, I really hope you guys will get one. Th- these are these are going to be very helpful for you, I think. Going through the life of Elijah, especially as we kind of finish there talking about how the church is unstoppable, which that's a pretty cool subject on its own, but uh, it's called Difference Makers. If you want to be one that makes a difference in the life of the world, which you should be by the Holy Spirit and through the Word of God, this is one for you. It's on Amazon. You guys can go get it. You can go to the website, ironworksmedia.org. You can go to calvarychapeltrustful.com to check these out. Uh, we have ebooks, the Kindle version, and we have a paperback version, which you can get, and uh, it would really help us out. This is part of the vision, part of what we want to do, and uh, I, I can't wait until the next one. But for right now, you know, what, by the time we publish one, I'm usually so over the book, <laughs> published over the last book, that I just want to move on to the next one. But uh, don't miss this. Pick it up. It'll be great. And uh, we will see you all next time. Thanks for tuning in to the Ironworks Podcast. Have a great day. Thanks, guys.